glad to see you guys. There's gonna come a point in time in the very near future that I'm gonna have to start wearing my glasses or blowing up my font to 20. It's one of the two is gonna happen here. So, that's supposed to be funny, but you guys, y'all think I'm like 30. I'm way past that a long ways, but so glad you guys could be here. My name is Jason Piffle. I'm on staff here at Crosspoint. Excited to be able to preach this week, uh, to talk to you about God's word. Uh, it's funny, funny thing, Every time I get asked to do something like this, usually it's kind of in a series, and part of me is kind of like, "Woo, dodge the bullet, don't have to do Ecclesiastes, but the other, on the other side of the coin, it's like, pick anything from the Bible to preach on this week. That's a daunting task, right? Like, if you just had to pick one thing, it's a scary thing. So anyway, I've picked something. Uh, I've picked something that, uh, two, probably two of my favorite passages, the beginning of John 3 and a passage in Ephesians 2, a couple passages that mean a lot to me, mean a lot to my dad, probably John 3, I know is his favorite passage, and uh, so that's what I want to preach on today. I think it's going to be good. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But So let me get going. I, I just have a question to start out. Uh, have you ever believed one thing in your life so strongly and then later on found out that you were completely wrong? That's the question. Raise your hand if you're in your life. Okay, good. We have a whole room of very humble people. I appreciate that. You're gonna love this. So I'm here to destroy a few of your beliefs to get us started this morning. Uh, Did you know, all right, contrary to popular belief, that Sir Isaac Newton actually did not discover the theory of gravity by having an apple fall on his head? I know that hurts deep down inside. That's painful to think about. But apparently he was a big storyteller and he liked to embellish his stories. Him and his buddy were sitting under a tree having tea and the thought came to him and eventually the story became an apple hit him on the head. Sorry. Second thing, did you know that Albert Einstein didn't really fail out of math? That's a big one. A lot of people believe that he was terrible at math, but look how awesome he is now. He didn't actually fail at math. He was actually really good at math, but he did fail at botany, zoology, and some other languages in an entrance exam he took for a college. Did you know this? Do you know that Napoleon wasn't actually that short? You guys know what I'm talking about? The famous commander of the French army was not actually as short as you think he was. Here's what was funny. A lot of people thought he was about 5'2". He's actually 5'7". So he's like a few inches shorter than I am. And uh, the reason it got mixed up is because the ruler that the French used for a foot was different than the ruler that the English used. And so if you measured him by the English ruler, he was 5'7". If you measured him by the French one, he was 5'2". Weird stuff, right? Who knew all that stuff? I didn't know any of that. But I think it goes to show a lot of times we believe things in life and we believe them for our whole lives and then we find out, oh man, I might be wrong. This might not be true and it's difficult to change our minds. Maybe for you, it's your belief in God. Some of you might in this room might believe that God just simply doesn't exist and I have friends of mine who are currently wrestling with that concept. I've had some friends who are still in that and still believing that God doesn't exist is a difficult thing to, to prove that something doesn't exist, right? Uh, and then I have friends who are kind of moving through that and discovering that, hey, maybe God does exist and God is real. Maybe for you, it's a theological issue. You've grown up your entire life building, like believing in Armenianism or maybe Calvinism. And now you're going, you're looking at scripture and you're going, ooh, I, I'm not sure. I feel a little uneasy 
with this. I've maybe been a little bit dogmatic one way or another, and that kind of puts you on your heels, and you're like, I may have to at some point in time admit that I was wrong, that what I believed all this time was not exactly true. And that's a difficult thing. You know, when I was a, a teenager, uh, I got tricked into going to a student conference uh, when I was a non-Christian, and the whole point of the confer- conference was to share the gospel with people. They didn't tell me that part. And uh, so I show up at this conference. Uh, it was Dawson McAllister. Anybody know who that is? Raise your hand if you know, a few people. Uh, but what about this one? And the music was by Al Denson. Uh, we got a couple nod heads. Like, see, now you know how old I am. Uh, I remember that conference pretty vividly. It was a great time, but I remember the final night, this night where the gospel was presented and people were given the opportunity, teens were given the opportunity to accept Jesus, to, to move into a relationship with him. And I, I tell you, I'm not even joking. I sat in my seat and I felt this, I would say, call of God on my life, like this is for you, Jason. And I sat there and struggled. In my mind, I said, if he asks one more time, I'm going. And he never did. And so I sat there and I went home. And honestly, there was a part of me that was a little disappointed. But I think part of the reason I didn't want to jump into that is I felt like I was gonna have to change everything in my life that I had believed up to that point was gonna have to shift. And so in my pride, I resisted that moment. So today we're gonna talk about somebody in the Bible who is just like that, who thinks a lot like the, the way we do. Uh, this guy was a religious leader. Uh, he had a very specific view of what it took to get to the kingdom of God, to get to heaven. And then he realized through the story that he was wrong. And so his name is Nicodemus. You can go ahead and open your Bible. Uh, we're going to read the first uh, about eight verses in chapter three of the book of John. If you have one of our Bibles, it's located in the basket in front of you. It's actually page 577. Make it easy on you. Just flip to there. I'm going to read this. Uh, it should be up on the screen behind me, and uh, we will get rolling and unpack this. Verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the scripture. This is such a crucial passage of the Bible that I think really unearths our real beliefs and it moves us to a place where we can understand that there is something so far greater and there's a better way. There's a way that actually works to enter into the kingdom of God, to engage in relationship with you, to be in your presence at some point in the future. 
God, thank you for Nicodemus and the process that he goes through this passage in his humility and his example. So we love you. Pray you help me to speak your words, not my own, um, that they would be moved, uh, people would be moved by the Holy Spirit, maybe to change or to consider new things in life. So we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so let's take a couple minutes and we'll unpack all this. Uh, let's start in a good spot. Verse one, you guys ready? Here we go. So now there was a man, I'm gonna reread this, uh, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. So a lot of us understand kind of, I think, who a Pharisee is, but I wanna make sure that we're all on the same page and not make any assumptions. Uh, these Pharisees were very religious people. Uh, there's no religious people in the South. You guys know anybody? Okay, so they're like that, but even more probably. Very, very religious person. In fact, he was so religious uh, that it moved into the, the realm of legalism. And so let me explain that because I think it's an important thing to understand. So for these people that were Pharisees, uh, there was obviously God's law that they didn't want to break. That's a very important thing. Uh, but in order to not break that, they would make up own, their own human laws further and further away from the actual God's law so that they didn't break, accidentally break God's law, okay? Now, in that of itself, I don't think that's a huge problem. I don't have a problem with saying, you know what? Ah, why go right up to the line and maybe, maybe sin? Like I can kind of set some standards that are a little further back. That seems to be wisdom. The difference comes is when you break the human law and someone says, well, now you've sinned. That's where it becomes a problem. That's where extra rules like that become a huge issue. Or it becomes about people controlling people. Those are huge, huge problems. And so for this guy, he was a Pharisee and had all these rules. Uh, there's a quote here by Kent Hughes, one of our favorites to, to quote around here. This is what he said. They were so earnest about their faith that on the Sabbath, they would carry no more food than the weight of a dry fig and no more milk than could be swallowed in at one gulp, lest they break the Sabbath rest. I've never read a rule in the Bible that says that that's a thing. Now, breaking the Sabbath, yes, but that specific, that's a big stretch, right? Sometimes we create legalisms too. We do the same thing. We create these rules about what is good and bad. And, and if other people break our human rules and we kind of look down on our noses at them or we may judge them or like if you wear a certain clothing or things like that, we're like, oh man, they're obviously not very strong believers if they're gonna wear that. Or we do the same thing with alcohol. I mean, what, Jesus' first uh, miracle was turning water to, right, Welch's grape juice, right? It was not, it was water to wine. But yet we draw a line and we say, um, hey, you probably, you shouldn't ever drink any sort of alcoholic beverage. That's a, a legalism. Now, in that, just as a little caveat, I think there is wisdom in saying, hey, if, you're, if your brother is struggling with those sort of things, you're like, uh, I think I can maybe flex a little bit and in wisdom love them and care for them and make a different choice. But it's not a sin issue. And so we do exactly the same thing. I think we do it with schools. And we say, oh, if you're a Christian, you should probably put your kids in a Christian school or homeschool or whatever your choice may be. And if you don't, we can sometimes look at each other and go, hmm, man, I don't think they quite get it the way we do. Or maybe that's sin and we judge other people for things that are man-made. I think that's what we do. The second part of this is said that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. 
Uh, my understanding is that he was part of what was called the Sanhedrin, or a lot of people think he was part of that. would be kind of equivalent to a senator for us. Uh, there was about 70 of these men, and I think this is an interesting phrase, who ruled over every Jew on the, on the planet Earth. Like, that was their job, to rule over every Jew on Earth. So Nicodemus was important. He was powerful. He was educated. A lot of times, if we look at his life, like, if, if Nicodemus applied for a job at Crosspoint, we'd be like, sign him up. This guy is amazing. We need to get him on staff. That's the way we would see him. That's how we would analyze his life. And we go, this guy has got it all together. He was comfortable. He had the approval of his peers. He had the admiration of his neighbors. Everybody's looking up to him. So in a sense, his discipline and his hard work had really gained in many of the things that we would love. If you think about our lives and the things that we desire outside of God, this guy had them. But Celia, here he is, sneaking around, coming to meet with Jesus because he just feels, I think, unsettled. There's something inside of him that's going, something is not right here. And I think Jesus is the answer to knowing that. Ray Ortland said this, he said, Nicodemus really represents all of us at our best. And so I think that makes him a good example. I think that makes him a good person in this story for us to be able to relate with. Let's go on to verse two. So this man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's sneaking around at night because he's really worried about what his other Pharisees are gonna say about him meeting with Jesus. This could be a major problem for Nicodemus. And so he's gonna be very, very careful about this whole thing. And he comes to Jesus, I think, with respect. He's saying, you're, you're a rabbi, you're a teacher, you're, you know, you're doing these amazing things. Obviously, it's from God, right? And I think he would even say, like, I'm kind of lining you up with maybe equal with an Old Testament prophet at this point in time. That, and so he's giving him all these accolades moving forward and respect that Jesus really deserves. But I love the next verse, verse three. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So Jesus just plain old interrupts him. He doesn't say, oh, Nicodemus, thanks, man, for coming to see me. You're, you're a great Pharisee, and man, I really, I think you are a great man, and a lot of people look up to you. You're doing a lot of great things right, and all these pleasantries. He's not saying that at all. He goes, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So back in these times, when, when you see a word uh, said multiple times, it carries like a, a greater essence or a greater weight to it. And this word in particular, uh, a lot of people have said this comes from the, the word amen. So a lot of times when we pray and we get to the end of a prayer, we say amen, right? And what we're really saying is everything that I just prayed, I pray is true. It is true. But when you take the same word and you stick at the beginning of the sentence, it means, it does mean the same thing. It means what I'm about to say is really true with one addition, it means not only is it true, but the person making that statement has firsthand knowledge 
and authority about the statement. Do you guys get that? So let me say it one more time. Not only does it say it's true, but that person making the statement has firsthand knowledge and authority about it. So he's saying, I know what I'm talking about. And so we're gonna skip the pleasantries right here and I'm gonna go right for the heart. I'm gonna go right for that thing that is inside you, that the question that you've never asked, but I know what it is, and I'm gonna unearth that in this one statement. And I love that. And I don't know if it was a time issue. You know, he's like, okay, we don't have a lot of time here. Let's get to it because somebody might show up. I don't know if that, but I think it was Jesus knows this man's heart and he knows what he's gonna ask before he asks it. Ken Hughes also said, uh, I thought this was good. Back in those days, rabbis had a saying. Uh, so anybody who's converting to Judaism is like a newborn child. All the things that they thought before were now completely new and their old connections were being destroyed. So in a sense, that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's like, all the things that you have believed in the past, they may be gone. Like This is a really disruptive thing that we're doing right here. And it's gonna rock your categories and you're gonna have to decide what you're gonna do after this. Let's go on to verse four. Nicodemus said to him, which I think this is a great question too, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, I think Nicodemus really wants to know. I mean, I don't think he's being sarcastic. I don't think he's being a smart aleck. I think he's just going, I really want to understand what is happening. But what the context of his life is, you have a guy who spent his entire life trying to earn the favor of God. His entire life has been spent seeking the kingdom of God with what he does, with his actions, right? He has a gigantic multi-page, maybe a book, of things that he should do and not do. It's very tangible in his face, and that's what he's been doing for his whole in life, his whole life. And so he's been asking this question, what must I do? Do I need to go back into my mother's womb? What must I do? Just tell me what it is, and I will do it. Maybe you're like Nicodemus, and you've spent much of your life trying to earn the favor or approval of God and asking the exact same question. What must I do? I asked that question for the first 17 years of my life. Well, maybe a few less. I probably didn't ask that when I was two or one. But there came a point in time when I started asking the question, like, what must I do to get to heaven? Like, what is the list? Give it to me and I'll do my best. That's what I wanted because it's tangible it's easy to kind of wrap your mind around it and you'd make a decision whether you're gonna do it or not. And so I had two choices when I was a teenager. I could choose sin and I could choose to just do whatever I wanted to do it. And the world says, as long as you pursue things and you don't hurt other people, do whatever, it doesn't matter. Or the other option is, is I could choose good behavior. That was my route, I chose good behavior. But ultimately, that led me to a life of meaninglessness. I remember thinking over and over again, like, what is the point? It's really kind of a funny thing. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and a lot of this book is really about that, right? 
the, the meaninglessness of life, I started asking myself questions like, why finish school? What's the point of that? Why finish college? Why get a job? Why get married? Why buy a house? Why have kids? Why go on vacation? Why repair your house? Why get old? I can't really control that one, but why anyway? Why retire? And then why watch my kids do the same thing and then die? That was my thought process. That was me asking the question, what must I do? Like, I don't get it. This doesn't, like there's no meaning in doing things. But I think that's the only thing that the simple world can offer is that pathway, those things. Some people move into activism and they wanna you know, try to save the turtles and save the whales because I think they're looking for something outside of themselves, something existential that would give their life meaning. But we all fall short and it just never, ever works out. And until we realize that that's something more, that thing that we're looking for is God. And God is spirit, right? And so we try to come up with meaning with physical things rather than a spiritual answer. And I think that's what Nicodemus is struggling with. He goes to, there has to be a physical answer to my problem, right? There has to be a physical answer. Is it going back into my mother's womb? Maybe that's it. And then Jesus masterfully in the next line Clarifies. Let me say, verse five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, here it is again, right? I'm the authority here, listen up. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so Jesus expands this whole thing and he starts talking about the miracles of life, this physical miracle that happens at birth, right? If you've been in that room when a baby is born, you can't help but go, that blew my mind, that's amazing, I don't even know. Like, and and the, all the nine months leading up to that, that's a miracle, and you can't help but sit back and go, I, my mind, like, I'm in shock with what just happened here. That is an amazing thing. But what he's saying is, Something even greater is a spiritual birth. Someone being born again is even greater because one is bringing new life and the other one is bringing life from death. And so it's a huge miracle. Let's read in Ephesians chapter two. It talks a little bit about this. It's my other favorite passage I was telling you about. I'm gonna skip around a little bit, but I think it kind of holds together. Ephesians 2, verse uh, 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So before you come to faith in Jesus, before you are made born again, before God does this amazing miracle in your life, this is who you are. This is who I was. This is who we were We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Not only the things like the sin nature that is innately in us that just kind of drives us to make bad decisions, but the actual bad decisions that we make. A lot of, we all make bad decisions all the time. 
And pre-Christ, this is who we are. This is our identity, dead in our trespasses and sin. And, And let me add to it, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So to pursue this world is really not pursuing Jesus. And then adding to that, to make it even worse, following the prince of the power of the air. So in a sense, we were following Satan. When we are not following Jesus, we default to following Satan. It's crazy. It says it right there. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That was our identity. If you don't know Jesus, that really is your identity. That is who you are. A son of disobedience. A daughter of disobedience. But here's the thing that I love about passages like this. They have this little short little three-letter word right in the middle. Starts with a B. But God. I love that. Anytime I see that in scripture, I'm like, so thankful for that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were sinning against him, even when we were in our rebellion against God, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And this next verse was the, Probably the kicker verse for me coming to faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. That blew me up because my entire life was what must Jason do to get to heaven? What must Jason do to get to God, right? And then I read that and I was like, it's not about that. It's a gift of God to resurrect my very soul. Verse nine, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not that we become Christians and then we become anarchists, right? It's like, we just do whatever we wanna do. We got, it. we got our ticket to heaven. We're in great shape. He's saying, you become a believer by the grace of God resurrecting your dead soul. And as a result of that, alive people can do live things. Dead people can only do dead things. And that's the shift that takes place. And so if you're a living, you are born again, you're called to do live things. You must be born again. You must be born of the water and the spirit. You must experience new life. The one thing that Nicodemus so, set, so desperately seeks, he really can't attain on his own. It's a must. It's not of, here's another option of 10. You can do this one or you can do this one. It's not. There's just one way. And so if you're Nicodemus, think about this. Everything that you know, everything that you've believed your entire life, obeying the law to try to earn God's favor, finding additional rules to hopefully make you even more like God is wrong because the point of the law is just to show you how bad you are and how much you need Jesus. And that's the part he never got. There's nothing physically that he can do There's nothing physically that we can do to earn God's favor. Entering the kingdom of God is a result 
of God resurrecting our dead souls. Billy Graham once told the story, uh, I thought it was a great story, of a guy who was uh, a pilot, and he was flying over the ocean, and he crash-landed into the water. So nowhere near close to land, uh, just out there in this giant, giant ocean. And so he crashed, crashes his plane into the ocean, he doesn't die, and now he is floating in the water, and everybody's like, worst case scenario, sharks are trying to eat him. Like they are coming, and he is like beating them off with his hands and his feet. And he's done this hour after hour after hour. You think, how long can you do that before you just completely lose hope, right? So after 10 hours of that, another plane flies over and notices him in the water, contacts the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard comes and rescues this man, plucks him out of the water and puts him on the boat. You see, the man didn't save himself. He didn't come up with some new technique, right? He didn't say, okay, well, if I swim on my side, I, I maybe look less like food, or I don't know, or on his back. You know, or if I punch in a certain spot, then these, these sharks will give up, and then I can kind of take it easy. It wasn't about a new technique. He really needed outside intervention, that's really what he needed in life, right? In that moment, and that outside intervention led to his salvation of being saved from the sharks. That's how this works. We are that guy, hopeless in the water. We're probably more than that. We're, we're that guy, but we're actually dead under the water, and God rescues us and pulls us out and gives us new life. So after all of that, Nicodemus had to have a crazy look on his face. And you're probably like, oh, how do you know that? Well, you can look at the context and go, if that was me, that I would be going, what is happening right now? But if you look at verse seven, here it is up on the screen. It says, do not marvel that I said to you. He, he's gotta be going, I'm in shock. <laughs> what is happening here? Do not... Jesus like, don't marvel. Don't look at me like that. Don't look at me like that because this is what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. A shift has to happen. It has to happen from thinking physically, right, of how we can earn salvation, how we can earn God's favor to a spiritual solution to our spiritual problem. And that's what being born again means. It means that we get to the point where we go, I need outside intervention, and that outside intervention is Jesus. You must be born again. It's not a suggestion. It's a declaration. In fact, put it up on the screen, the only way to God comes from God. I think that's a great statement. There are no other religions in the world that can say that, but we have such a loving God, a loving God that sent his son Jesus to die for us and to pay for our sins, to take our punishment and give us his righteousness. The only way to God is from God. That is an amazing, amazing fact. And so this transformation, the verse says, comes like the wind. We can't see it, but the wind is very real. We all know that. It's this unseen power that really can divert about anything. 
It can wear down rocks. It can do amazing things. You know, I, I, let me tell you, the very first time and probably the only time I've ever seen a tornado in real life, I remember I was a kid, I was camping with my family and another family, and uh, we were at this lake in Nebraska, which yes, we have lakes in Nebraska, and this thing is gigantic. And I'm standing on the side of the lake and I'm looking across to the other side, which is probably a couple miles away, and there are two tornadoes dancing around each other in this field. And in that moment, I felt very vulnerable. I'm like, that's not that far away. Like, that could come here. Then what would happen? Like, there's nowhere to go. We're camping in tents. Like, what's going to happen here? But that was the beginning of me understanding the power of wind. Think about a hurricane. That wind can push a pile of water 10, 15 feet high up on the land. Something that we cannot see just pushes water the Holy Spirit is kind of like that, but more. Because the Holy Spirit resurrects and makes dead people alive. I like how uh, Matt Carter puts it. I think this is a great, uh, great quote. He's a pastor from Austin Stone Church in Austin, Texas. Uh, he said this, the only way that you can be born again is for the Spirit of God to do it all. If you're not a Christian, you won't become one by work or effort or ability or sacrifice. That's everything I've been telling you this whole time. But you can pray for God to send his spirit like the wind and blow into your dead head and make you alive. I love that. I love that. That's like just honest imagery that God is gonna just blow his spirit into my dead head and something new is gonna come out of that. It's such a great quote. And so I implore you right now, there has to be people in this room who don't know Jesus. There has to be. There has to be people who are trying to earn God's n notice that's trying to earn their way into heaven, that's trying to earn their way into the presence of God, that God would approve you because of the good things that you are choosing to do. There has to be people like that. There also has to be people who have chosen a life of not to good behavior that are in exactly the same place who need Jesus just as much, right? But you think of it this other direction. You think, well, I'm just too dirty for God to make me new. Or let me put it in this terms, you think you're too, more dead than the person next to you for God to resurrect your life. And so both of those categories are the same. The results are the same. And so you might be asking yourself, what can I do? Which is a physical response, right? In fact, it's a sin. I would say that's a sin. To me growing up thinking my entire life, what can I do? It basically says, I have the ability to do something that only God can do. And that's sin. So let me jump down here. We'll wrap it up here with this. Verse 19, it's gonna be on the screen behind me. It says this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Here it is. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So I think you have to ask yourself a question. Deep down inside, to be introspective enough and to know yourself enough to ask this question, in all honesty, does my core, does my soul, does the thing that's deep inside of me love the light or the darkness? Which one is it? I think you also have to ask yourself the question, am I doing something to try to earn my way into the kingdom of God? Have I constructed some sort of plan to earn God's favor? If you love the darkness or you are trying to earn your way to God, you are not born again. And that's a pretty heavy statement to make. But I think it's God making it. It's not me making it. I'm just repeating what he says. If that's who you are, you're not born again. And you need something new. You need Jesus. You need God to radically come into your life and give you new life. And so here's what I would say to you. If that's you, if you are like me, Jason the teenager, sitting in the chair, listening to Dawson McAllister, a long time ago, and you feel the call of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you're going, that's true, that's me. I would say, pray to God and say, I am sorry, God, that I've been doing things my way. I need you to intervene in my life and save me. I need that. I need you. I need you to be the Lord of my life. I wanna quit doing that. And there's gonna be a time, you can do that right now, or you can do that later when James comes back up and take a moment and talk to God. Don't miss that opportunity because I think the Holy Spirit is moving. I think he's moving in the lives of the people in this room because we must be born again. There's no other option. Let me address the people in this room who would say, yeah, I, that's, I'm born again, that's me. The passage also says to believers that we are to continue to come to the light, that our lives should be moving towards purity as a result of our salvation, as, far, as part of being born again, to move to Jesus and to be more and more every day becoming more like him. And the second one is it's clear that our works are done as a result of Jesus. I think I just said that. So let me ask you some questions. When you analyze your life as a Christ follower, does anyone notice that you are born again? Does anybody notice that I am born again? Or does my life look the same as everybody else's? If my life looks the same as everybody else's, there's probably room to analyze my life and go, hmm, I wonder what's happening in me. I wonder, what am I resisting? What sort of resisting of the Holy Spirit in my life am I experiencing right now? Second one, am I living in the light at home? Am I living in the light, how about this, in private? When nobody is around, do I live in the light or do I live in the darkness in those moments? How about this third one? Does being a Christ follower change how I treat my spouse? Does this changed heart should lead 
to changed behavior, right? It's living people living as living people. So it should change how I treat my my spouse. How about this one? How does being a Christ follower change how I parent my kids? One of the coolest things, a few years ago, we did a, uh, a webcast with Paul David Tripp on parenting. And if I had one takeaway from that, there was a lot of good takeaways, but one in particular was, do, does Jason Piffle make parenting and discipline about me or about my children? And I think for me, for a long time, it was really about me. It was about my kids inconveniencing me and causing me trouble and disrupting my kingdom rather than I want my girls to love Jesus and to follow Jesus and I'm gonna guide them that direction. How about this one? Does being a Christ follower change how I date? Does it change who I date? Does it change what I do with someone that I'm not married to? I think it should, right? Why would someone who has a light in their heart pair themselves with someone who is not following Jesus? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So choose wisely. Make wise choices. Find someone who is going where you're going. Someone who loves Jesus with you and is gonna support you and push you that direction. That's what you want. Does being a Christ follower change my love for the spiritually dead? Do I have a heart for people who are lost? I think that's why I wanted to preach on this. It's because I look around sometimes and I go to a grocery store and I go, if God would show me the number of people in this room who don't know him, that should hurt my heart. Because I think that's what God feels he feels a grieving of going, oh man, people come to me. I can make you alive. And so do I care about that? And the last one here, as a Christ follower, do I love other things practically more than I love Jesus? That's a hard one for a parent. I think it's a hard one for anybody. But as soon as you have children, you, it's very, very easy to take your kids and to raise them up and, practically speaking, love them more than you love Jesus. I've done, I feel like I've done that. And I don't think the solution is to say, well, I need to love my children less, so let's tamp them down a little bit. That's not the solution. I think the solution is, is I just, I love them with my whole heart. I love them with everything. I love my wife. But I just love Jesus more. You know, and I think that's the shift that has to happen for us is when we love Jesus most, we are really giving our best to our families. It, it, it trickles this way, you know? It's like when we give our families the best, then there really isn't anything left over for Jesus. But when we give Jesus our most love and our most affection, it naturally plays out in our families and our families, I think, are better. And I think our kids understand and have a model for their lives going forward of going, you know what, my parents didn't idolize me. My parents loved me, but they loved Jesus more. My kids, like, my parents loved 
their mom. My dad loves my mom more than they <laughs> loves me. Doesn't mean I don't love my kids. And so there is a priority to these things. And so I think that's the kind of stuff, those are just a few things that we look at and kind of go, as a result of the salvation that we have, and now that we are alive, we should make choices that fall in line with being alive and living in the light. And so if that's you today, here's what I would say the same thing for you. The gospel says that we have a great hope in Jesus, that we can repent of our sin and we can ask the Holy Spirit to restore us. That's it. If you are a follower of Jesus, that's it. That's, that's your marching orders. Analyze your life, potentially be convicted by the Holy Spirit that is in you, repent of your sin, and ask the Holy Spirit to change you. That's how discipleship works. That's how spiritual growth works. If you're trying to figure out what it is, that's it. Now, I think Bible study leads up to that, and you look at Bible study and you go, Bible study identifies things in our lives that we're falling short. I think that's what it does. Tells us a lot about who God is, tells him how, ama- us, how amazing he is. It also tells us how sinful we are and tells us how amazing Jesus is. So we repent and we embrace the Holy Spirit's work in our lives.